Thank you, everyone, for joining us. My name is Kevin Klein. I'm with the Global Business Alliance, and this is the first episode of our new monthly tax policy uh, podcast. This is following up our monthly trade policy podcast, which has been very successful. And given everything that's happening in the world of tax, I am glad to be uh, instituting this new podcast here. For our first episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Alexandra Minkovich, a partner with Baker McKenzie. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Alexandra, she's been a guest on some of our live calls and has done a lot of work for GBA over the years, but uh, she... Beyond just being a partner at Baker McKenzie, she has a lot of experience formerly at Treasury in the Office of Tax Policy uh, and elsewhere as well. So, Alexandra, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here, Kevin. Thank you so much. So, we are recording this on Wednesday, April 28th. And as of right now, I know that GBA has spent a lot of time and put out a lot of information on proposals surrounding the base erosion anti abuse tax or the BEAT and its potential replacement by the SHIELD. This is obviously a big topic for us as a group of inbound companies. We are in the middle of a series of meetings, over 40 Hill meetings that I know a lot of folks who are listening to this podcast uh, are also participating in on the Hill. And so we will continue to prioritize those issues moving forward. But because we've been focusing so much on them, I thought that we would use this opportunity on the podcast to cover some of the other proposals that have been in both the Biden administration proposal and the the Senate Finance Democrats white paper that haven't gotten quite as much of attention, but are still very much top of mind. And with that, I'd like to start with the global minimum tax. You know, Alexandra, my thinking here is that this is really the linchpin of the Biden tax proposal. Basically, without the global minimum tax, the rest of their proposals don't really work. And so if you could, can you explain what the proposal is and what the outlook is for it actually happening? Absolutely, Kevin. So first of all, I I agree with you that this idea of a global minimum tax really is required for many of the the Biden administration's proposals to actually work. And one of the key proposals that we've seen come out of the Biden administration is a, a proposal to replace the beat with shield and, and that is really contingent upon reaching agreement on a global minimum tax. What the shield would do is deny deductibility for payments made to related foreign parties who are in a low tax jurisdiction. And of course, that immediately raises the question of what is a low tax jurisdiction? The Biden administration clearly intends this to work hand in hand with the work on pillar two. and. The reports that we've seen out of the Biden administration very explicitly say that they would like to use the rate that's agreed upon at the OECD as their global minimum tax rate for purposes of SHIELD. But there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem here, which I'll delve into in a moment in terms of of timing. The OECD project and whatever happens in terms of U.S. tax legislation are not on the same track. And so that creates the possibility for the Biden administration that the OECD may not have reached agreement by the time tax legislation is passed by Congress and goes to the president for his signature. And so what do you do in the event that that that's what unfolds? The Biden administration says, look, should SHIELD become effective before the OECD reaches agreement on a global minimum rate, we'll use the guilty rate, which in the Biden proposal is 21%, although as we've discussed on prior monthly calls, Mm -hmm. may wind up being something lower. All Mm -hmm. of this raises a number of questions. 
as we're talking about rates, possible gold minimum tax rates, and the Biden administration want 21% rate, are we thinking that these are effective tax rates or are these headline rates? That's a great question, and I think the answer at this point is that it's unclear. When we get the um, green book from the Biden administration, which we're expecting in late May, maybe sometime in June, we'll see what they're thinking. But based on conversations that I've had with some folks on the Hill, the tension here is choosing ETR would really be a very administrable approach, both for taxpayers and for the IRS. Um, uh, sorry, choosing statutory rates would be mm -hmm. a very administrable approach for taxpayers and the IRS. However, there's some concern that taxpayers, particularly in certain jurisdictions, often don't wind up paying the statutory rate. So mm. when you look back to Kim Clausing's testimony and look at the, the list of jurisdictions that she specifically called out as having um, lower tax rates and being tax haven jurisdictions, about half of those jurisdictions allow taxpayers to enter into agreement with the tax authority to lower their rate fairly significantly below the statutory rate. Mm -hmm. Many of those agreements have expired, are about to expire. Those things are generally going the way of the dodo bird, which mm -hmm. I think reduces some of the pressure, but I do think that there's a concern on the Hill about how do you account for the fact that in some jurisdictions, folks may not actually be paying the statutory rate. Of course, if you do that, that comes with a substantial amount of complexity. Right, of course. And then how do you how do you contemplate losses? You know, so, some companies that I've been talking to have mentioned they might be in a loss position in their in their parent company jurisdiction. And is the U.S. just going to override that? Uh, yeah, it, it's it seems like there's a lot of unanswered questions there. I agree. Yeah. So you did mention the the timeline issue, the fact that the U.S. seems to be wanting to do the shield on a on a very quick timeline. Uh, part of that's obviously politically motivated. The fiscal year ends at the end of September, and that changes the number of times that the Democrats can use reconciliation. At least we think it does. Uh, the Democrats have highlighted that they might have a ruling from the parliamentarian saying that they can amend previous reconciliation bills. But to my knowledge, nobody's seen that. Um, and it would be uh, it would be nice to be able to uh, to actually know what what they're allowed to do and what they're not. But for right now, it seems like they really need to get this done by the end of September when the fiscal year turns over. They're going to lose one of their one of their bullets, one of their shots at reconciliation here. And then if you get any much later than that into next year, you have political considerations because you're in another um, and further political considerations because you're in another election year there. So the U.S. wants to move quickly. OECD implementation, as you mentioned, is not going to move quickly. Uh, assuming that they do get some sort of agreement here in the summer, it's likely to be very top line. And then it's going to take years for this to play out. Can you give an idea of how much of a disadvantage I know this is hard to quantify, but your thoughts on how much of a disadvantage the U.S. would be in in international tax in the meantime, if the shield was in place while the rest of the OECD is still coming online for what could be three to five years or longer? Yeah, I, I think rather in terms of quantifying it, I think I'll address it sort of in terms of how I'm thinking about the issue. The first question sure. I'm asking myself is, one, what's the real timeline at the OECD? You mentioned that 
although they're shooting for agreement this July, we really expect that to be a very top line agreement. In fact, Pascal mm -hmm. Santamon has said October is the new July, which suggests that they're pushing out their ability to get to an agreement even further than we had mm -hmm. anticipated, not to mm -hmm. mention implementation. But sure. let's assume that we see some sort of agreement this summer about what the appropriate rate is in pillar two. Mm -hmm. A couple of questions that I have there. One, what is that rate? The US is using 21% as a placeholder in its proposals, but I think it's highly unlikely that the OECD is going to go as high as 21%. I think mm -hmm. most countries were thinking that the pillar two rate was going to be much closer to the Irish rate of 12 and a half percent. So the first question I have is how much is the OECD going to be willing to move off of its initial plan and towards the US rate? And I think the answer to that is probably not much. Mm -hmm. I think the second question we have to ask ourselves is, what what is the US's willingness to to meet the OECD at a lower rate? I don't think we know the answer here, and I would speculate that Congress might be more comfortable with a lower rate from the OECD than at least what we're seeing out of the administration right now. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the, the next question I have to ask myself is, how does the U.S. structure its system if it anticipates um, that it will take a while for the OECD agreement to come online? So it's one thing to say the there's going to be a minimum rate of 21% until there's agreement at the OECD. But what's actually the, the magic date? Is it the date that the OECD... Um, puts out a formal agreement on pillar two because that that could be in October. Mm -hmm. Is it the date um, countries begin their implementation? Well, how do you define implementation? How many countries need to, to begin their implementation process before we move to the lower rate? Presumably it wouldn't be all of them, but but some sort of critical mass. And of course, how do you move from one to the other? Is it flipping a switch from the 21% rate that the US prefers to whatever the pillar two, two rate is, or is it some sort of transition from one to the other? I think at this point, all of those things are unknown. And I suspect that many of them are, are up for discussion and negotiation. Right, I, I agree with that. I, I think that there's a lot of conversations still to be had. Um, let's move on. There's obviously a lot of, uh, of other proposals here to cover, and we could spend a lot of time on, on the global minimum tax and issues at the OECD. But I did want to talk a little bit more about what the administration has termed its, its stronger anti-inversion controls in its proposal here. Um, we've seen with many anti-inversion controls, or at least things that are, that are um, tied up in the rhetoric of, of inversions, that they often have consequences well beyond inversions. And I think that there's some concerns um, with the proposal, one of which is to alter the continuing ownership threshold rules, which currently are set at 80% uh, continuing ownership after a merger 
basically a, a company is considered a domestic company if the 80 percent of the domestic shareholders are, are still in place after a merger um down to 50 percent which means that it's going to affect you know true mergers of equals uh where, where you have uh, uh similar sized companies coming together and um you might have a headquarters abroad and and um 50, 51% of uh, share ownership in the U.S., and that's now considered a domestic company. Uh, but then also this new managed and controlled standard, which, um, Alexander, I'm going to ask you to define this, but I know I'm, I'm uh, putting you behind the eight ball here because they didn't tell us much. I think I think there's one sentence in the proposal saying that they want to implement a managed and controlled standard where if a company is considered to be managed and controlled in the U.S., then it's a domestic company regardless of, of what else. And they interestingly tied these two standards together, uh, not with an and where you would have to meet both uh, requirements to be uh, considered a domestic company, but with an or. So if you uh, if you trip one of these boxes, um, then then you're uh, all of a sudden a a domestic company, regardless of what else you have going on. So um, what are your thoughts on that? How does it work and um, what else should we be keeping an eye on here? So as a preliminary thought, what surprises me about these strengthened anti-inversion rules is I really see the administration fighting an old war here. I think that there is general agreement that the number of inversions that have occurred have, have plummeted in recent years. And whether you attribute that to the 385 regulations or to the changes made in the TCJA, I think the fact still remains that inversions have decreased substantially. So it surprises me somewhat that we are looking at these proposals. Yeah, yeah and on that point, before you, you get into it a little bit further, I would know it's almost it, it's almost a concession that everything else they're wanting to do is bad and will cause inversions because we don't have an inversion problem right now. So so why are you worried about it if um, you know if the rest of your your tax changes are, are not something that's going to incentivize inger- inversions? But that that's my rant. <laughs> <laughs> Point well taken. So let let me spend a little bit of time talking about managed and controlled. As you said, the Biden administration doesn't tell us what they mean by managed and controlled. But this is not a new idea. Um, we see it, it reflected in some of the U.S. tax treaties. We also see the concept of management and control covered in prior prior bills, notably those introduced by Senator Sanders in in recent years. And I think that what we're generally talking about is really a a facts and circumstances test in those prior proposals. They tend to refer to management and control occurring primarily within the United States. And so I'll give you a couple of examples of that. For example, in the treaty between the U.S. and the Netherlands, Management and control happens primarily within the U.S. if executive officers and senior management exercise day-to-day responsibility for more of the strategic, financial, and operational decision-making for the company in the U.S. as opposed to any other state. If you look at S714, which is this year's bill that includes the management and control language in it, it defines management and control as substantially all of the officers and senior management of the corporation who exercise day-to-day responsibility for making decisions involving strategic, financial, and operational policies are located primarily within the United States. So a couple of observations here. 
one, this, ref this would return us back to a world of facts and circumstances analyses, which I think that we've moved away from over, I would say, the past five years when there's really been a preference for bright line tests because they're supposedly easier for the IRS to administer. But second, and I think of, of greater interest to GBA member companies, is this, this tells you that having your executives and your senior management located in the United States and making decisions here is, is the key test. And so that raises a lot of questions, right? This isn't, as you noted earlier, an or test, either a 50% continuing ownership threshold or managed and controlled in the United States. If I'm concerned about avoiding that managed and controlled arm of the test, maybe I just put all of my executive officers and senior management employees in, I don't know, London. There are lots of jurisdictions worldwide that would be perfectly acceptable locations for executive officers and senior management employees to, to reside in and make most of the day-to-day the -day decisions that affect the, the mm -hmm. company's strategy and operations. Right, which I'm sure is exactly what the Biden administration is, is hoping to incentivize here. Um, uh, <laughs> exactly, that, that's exactly. That's sarcasm if, if, uh, if it doesn't come through on the podcast, but the idea that they would be trying to um, incentivize companies to move, you know, some of their most influential and frankly highest tax paying uh, employees to a different jurisdiction uh, seems a little counterintuitive. So certainly another issue for uh, for GBA to be working on. And then there are also obviously a lot of talk and a lot of focus on changes to the other parts of the international tax regime, including guilty and FDII. Um, Alexander, could you give us kind of an overview of what's going on here and, and anything specific that GBA members should be considering here? I know a lot of our members have no guilty issues whatsoever. Um, it's it's certainly not something that uh, that's at the heart of what we do as a group of inbound companies, but many of our companies are in sandwich structures, are guilty taxpayers, and um, are also following these issues. So I, I will address guilty at a fairly high level and not go into too much detail since it's not, I think, the most prominent issue for most of GBA's members. Mm -hmm. When I look at what the Biden administration has proposed and what came out in the Senate finance framework, what I see is really a substantial amount of overlap and general agreement amongst Democrats about what the appropriate policy response is to guilty. And I, I see really three primary areas of agreement. I think QBI is very clearly going to be eliminated. There's almost 100% overlap um, that that should happen. The rate will be increased. How much I think is up for negotiation. I think that the president's proposal to raise the rate to 21% is slightly unlikely. Um, but I think that there's room to maneuver that and we'll wind up with a guilty rate that's some proportion of whatever the corporate income tax rate winds up being. And then finally, um, of course, the question of do you apply guilty on a country by country basis or do you effectively take the guilty high tax exception regulations 
um, put them into statutory form and then have this distinction between high tax jurisdictions and low tax jurisdictions. That I think is probably the area where there's the most opportunity for companies to go in and be impactful when meeting with, with legislators on how, um, how to potentially revise guilty. I think FIDI is a much more complex question because I don't think that there's as much agreement um, between the White House and members of Congress about what to do with FIDI. I think first there's a lack of understanding on the Hill about how many taxpayers actually use FIDI to their advantage and what those taxpayers are doing. I think part of that is attributable to the fact that when FIDI was first enacted, there was a concern about whether or not FIDI would be a, a prohibited export subsidy under the WTO agreements. And I think those who could benefit from FIDI did so, but weren't very public um, and in, in their use of it. And those who couldn't benefit from FIDI under their current structures sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, I'm not gonna worry about this one too much because it looks like it might come up for a WTO challenge anyway and be short-lived. I think now that we're several years down the road and we've never seen a WTO challenge against FIDI, those folks who have been using FIDI, I think really should be educating members of Congress about how FIDI incentivizes their manufacturing and other operations in the United States, because I think that that element is missing in this discussion. The Biden administration would propose to eliminate FIDI entirely. That's not the approach that the Senate Finance Framework takes. The approach that the Senate Finance Framework takes is to modify FIDI. And the way that finance would modify FIDI is to convert it to, to something called a foreign-derived innovation ben income benefit. And it would take into account current year spending on innovation spurring activities and things like worker training that happen in the United States. And then it would equalize the FIDI rate with the guilty rate. I think that this is an area where there's really gonna be a substantial amount of discussion over the next couple of months, because it is not entirely clear to me precisely what activities the administration and Senate finance are really looking to incentivize here. There's a lot of reference to R&D and innovation, but what does that mean? If we're being specific, mm -hmm. I would assume that the goal is to incentivize an increase in U.S. manufacturing, an increase in high-paying jobs in the United States. And I would ultimately mm -hmm. expect, once there's agreement on, on what those specific items are that we're looking to incentivize, then I think you can sit down and, and actually examine FIDI more closely and decide whether or not FIDI is incentivizing those things. And if it isn't, what changes need to be made to FIDI so that it more appropriately incentivizes whatever those goals are. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. 
Well, thank you, Alexander. That's been very helpful and a, a great overview of some of these other provisions that we have to keep in mind while we're focusing on uh, a lot of our inbound specific priorities. Uh, I would encourage anyone who's listening here who has any questions for, for me or Alexandra to, to reach out, shoot me an email, and I can get you in touch and, and we'll continue the conversation here. But in the meantime, uh, I'll see you on the next live call in a couple of weeks and, and hopefully the next podcast next month. Thanks again.